You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. What do healthcare professionals need to understand about healthcare reform and its implications in the treatment of diabetes? Joining us to discuss healthcare reform for patients with diabetes is Executive Vice President of Government Affairs and Advocacy of the American Diabetes Association in Alexandria, Virginia, Ms. Shireen Arendt. Ms. Arendt, welcome to ReachMD. Glad to be here. What are the implications of U.S. healthcare reform on the care and prevention of diabetes in the U.S.? Well, I think we need to start out by looking at where we were before the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act was passed, or as we now call it, the Affordable Care Act, because I think it gives you a sense from the patient's perspective of where we are. And I'd like to talk about some of the, the folks that came to us at the American Diabetes Association people like Jessie McDonough. She has type 2. She understands how important it is to do what the doc tells her to do, but her husband gets a disability. He loses his job. She loses her insurance. She's told they make $100 too much to get any help, so she says, I'm going to take my insulin once a day instead of twice. I know that's not the right thing for me, but those are the stories that we heard. So if we think about people with diabetes being outside of the fence, outside of the market, because prior to health reform, um, unless you got insurance because you were elderly or through your employer, you could be told, sorry, we don't want you because you have diabetes or charged an exorbitant rate or thrown off your insurance just when you needed it because you were diagnosed or had a complication or told you reached an annual or, or lifetime limit and therefore no more care. So people with diabetes, some were inside the fence, but they were one job loss or divorce or a birthday away from getting kicked off the insurance they were on. So we found one out of six people saying, I've delayed, I haven't followed doctor's orders because of insurance. Eighty percent of the people who had been, who had lost their insurance, who had diabetes, were off for, for a while. So the big watershed moment amongst others is getting people with diabetes inside the fence. So as health reform is phased in, what we'll find is people with diabetes have a right to have insurance at the same rates as everyone else. That doesn't even include the, you know, umpteen millions of people with pre-diabetes, you know, because those folks need medications too. Well, that's right. I mean, the the sad thing about having one chronic condition or about to have a chronic condition is it doesn't stand on its own. So for people with diabetes who couldn't get insurance at all, they were also dealing with all the, the comorbidities and the complications of diabetes and not getting the care. We're in a system that will pay for the amputation but doesn't pay for the care needed. So what we need to do as health reform rolls out is to find the ways to make sure that health reform covers the tools. And a lot of this, um, there's a massive amount to be done in implementing it, and it's happening in stages. Um, Much of it happened in the first six months for some of the preexisting conditions and other things that have already gone into effect. Um, but looking down the road, um, what's in the essential benefits package, which will be what insurance companies that are in these exchanges, which is where a lot of insurance will happen, what do they have to provide? And it's up to us as the diabetes community to make sure that the tools for diabetes care are in that essential benefits package from um, the, the physical tools to the education to the the, the ability to see um, 
specialists. All of that needs to be a part of what people need moving forward. It really boils down to uh, individualized therapy and education that really hits home depending on that person's ethnic, cultural, and personal background. If you don't do that, you're you know, you're not going to get too far. Well, let's talk about some specifics about how healthcare reform can really assist these folks with diabetes, taking lots of medication, and sometimes in the position to cut those back in order to make it through the month. So I, I think if we talk about affordability in terms of health reform, we have to look at both a couple things I've already talked about. First off, you need to be in the system of, of getting health care. You need to be where there's no lifetime limits on benefits or annual limits. Um, then we talk about the nuts and bolts of what you're paying for within your, your system. Now, premiums, there is some protection for premium increase um, that is built into the system. There's also deductibles can't be above um, a certain amount, 2000 for individuals and 4000 for families. Um, Out-of-pocket limits can't go above... I, close to 6000 for individuals and 12000 for families. So those may seem like high costs, but they're in contrast to what we have now, which is basically no limits on those sorts of things. So we're going to be looking at all of the different cost points for people with diabetes. But then I think it's particularly important to think about low-income people and how they're affected by the Affordable Care Act. Um, so the first thing that happens is Medicaid gets expa- expanded, Medicaid being the program um, that covers people based on needs-based. It's now going to be open to all adults and children, not simply people who have dependents. So that's going to open Medicaid up to a lot of very poor people. Um, it's also going to increase to 133% of the federal poverty level. That's still pretty low. We're talking about an individual who makes $14,000 a year or a family of four with 30000 but that still is a huge increase. And, in fact, when they talk about 32 million more people getting health um, insurance as a result of health care reform, that's half of them. That's $16 million right there. Um, another, um, another piece I think is really important for um, people with diabetes who are lower moderate income is that there are going to be tax credits for people that are between 100 and 400% of the poverty level and out-of-pocket limits that are phased in. I mean, is it everything that's going to make everything affordable for people? Um, Probably not, but it's a huge step in terms of people being able to pay for the drugs and the devices and the education that they need, again, coupled with us making sure those are considered essential benefits. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with Shireen Arendt. We are discussing the implications of healthcare reform for patients with diabetes. Now, Shireen, you mentioned a little earlier that some of these steps have already taken place with this new healthcare reform. Uh, well, there was a, a big six-month anniversary um, at the end of last month that brought in a whole bunch of new things. Now, um, one of the things that went into effect even before then is that people who are kept out of the insurance market because of pre-existing conditions obviously affects many people with diabetes. They've set up some high-risk pools or what they call pre-existing pools that are on the state level. Um, so people who are, you know, people who have been kept out of the system should try to get into those because as this phase is in, one of the key issues is not discriminating against people with diabetes and other pre-existing conditions. But for adults, that doesn't go into effect until 2014, and that's the same time that the mandate comes in. So you have to have a mandate for people to, to get insurance so that people don't wait until 
they have health conditions. So those two things don't happen until 2014 for adults. But for kids under age 19, they can no longer be denied insurance because of pre-existing conditions. I like the idea of patients knowing what medicine and therapies cost. What, what they cost and which ones are mo- most yes. effective yes. for them. Yes. And, and so what, what's set up through the health reform is what's called the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. And the purpose of this is to identify research priorities and conduct research that compares the clinical effectiveness of various medical treatments. It's going to be overseen by a multi-stakeholder board of governors um, assisted by expert advisory panels. And I think uh, as we are interested in knowing what's the most effective, people want to see that happen. But the other fear we have is will they make one size fit all? And my, is my insurance company going to completely cut me off on this one thing that works for me, even though it doesn't work for most people. And that's a valid concern. I think that there are some um, safeguards in health reform, and it's a pretty clear safeguard, which is the fine. We want this this research to be pure research. We want to find out what's out there, but we don't want people worried about losing their treatments. Um, so the findings from that can't be construed as mandates, guidelines, recommendations for payments, or coverage. I mean, that's not the purpose of it. The purpose is to find this information, and I think, Steve, the next step is getting it out to people so that they have the information they know to make effective, you know, in conjunction with their healthcare team, make decisions about what works best for them. This all sounds really quite ideal. How will this affect uh, the impact of cost on the healthcare system? I mean, if these some of these areas of treatment which have been researched to be the most effective, they may be more expensive as well. Well, I, I think that's right, and I think that w- what the difference between comparative effectiveness and cost effectiveness, you know, is is a is an important one. And as diabetes has developed, certainly there've been expensive things that have been added on that we've been able to show really have made a difference in people's lives, whether it it is drugs or whether it's um, devices and other treatments. And I think part of it is understanding that diabetes is a pay now or pay later kind of disease. And, And if we as a community can continue that drumbeat that you can not manage your diabetes well, and then we're talking about some really expensive complications. Sounds like the healthcare reform uh, is taking into account future diabetes prevention programs, and that's so important because prevention is where it's at. One of the the huge things we see in health reform is an effort to think about prevention, and those of us who are working on this bill throughout thought that's going to be the first thing that goes when the the number crunchers come, but it didn't. I mean, it's not everything we'd want, and nothing in health reform is everything you'd want. Um, but we see $15 billion over 10 years put it into prevention. We see a council being set up to think about primary prevention. We see chronic disease being seen as something that we want to prevent and not just treat. Um, one thing that I'm really excited about within health reform is the National Diabetes Prevention Program, and it's, it's exactly what we ought to do. We, we start with a clinical trial at NIH that proves that with lifestyle interventions, we can reduce 5 to 10% of weight and prevent 58% of type 2 diabetes in the clinical setting, have the science behind it, pretty darn expensive because it's in the clinical setting. Then CDC working with the YMCA Center for Disease Control, working with YMCA, um, figures out that we can move this into the community setting. So again, with the vision of diabetes translation from CDC taking the lead on that, we see that we can do this process of preventing diabetes and put it into the community setting at a cost of less than 300 a year, but, but saving us billions of dollars down the, 
down the road. Um, so that is authorized in health reform. So here's the challenge for our community is it now needs to be funded. It needs, there's a lot of things authorized in health reform that don't have the dollars associated with them. So there is this obvious pool of money in the prevention and wellness fund that we would look to, um, as well as other sources, because this is exactly what we need to do. Take evidence-based prevention, and then gear it up into the community setting. I'd like to thank our guest, Executive Vice President of Government Affairs and Advocacy of the American Diabetes Association, Shireen Arendt. Ms. Arendt, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients, That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess in a way it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com/dia.